tonight, I'd like to explore in some depth the topic of Vedna, of exploring our experience through this perspective of pleasant, unpleasant, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant. This experience of feeling tone is common to every experience that we have. Every single sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, every single arising in our mind comes with this flavor of being pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It's a, very, it's a natural arising based on just contact with our sense experience. In fact, our brains seem designed to operate with this valence in a way to protect ourselves from the unpleasant and to guide us towards the pleasant. It's an aspect of experience that can be easy to overlook the actual experience of feeling tone can be easy to overlook because we're so busy responding to it. When something pleasant arises, we tend to automatically be trying to get more of it, to hold on to it. When something unpleasant arises, we tend to automatically be trying to get rid of it. And so while we're very attuned to the experience of pleasant and unpleasant, we're not necessarily conscious of it. Our bodies, our minds tend to react automatically. But we don't really consciously experience this flavor. The Buddha pointed to this flavor of experience as a very important aspect of our experience to pay attention to, just because it is the springboard from which we react. In some ways, we think that we perhaps like certain things, like certain flavors, or like the way certain things look, or like certain... um, configurations of experience. But the Buddha points to, it's not necessarily the things themselves. Like, you know, I like chocolate ice cream, for instance. To me, chocolate ice cream is pleasant. And the Buddha says that's what we actually like, is the pleasant. Our minds think we like the chocolate ice cream. So in uh, the Buddha, in pointing to this, he says, this is the place from which our reactivity springs. Bonnie mentioned the other night this process of dependent origination and the feeling, um, the way feeling leads to reactivity is very clearly laid out in the process of dependent origination. And we'll probably talk about this more 
at a later time, this uh, cycle of dependent origination. And tonight I'm just going to briefly go over the way feeling is embedded into this cycle. So basically, as I just was mentioning, every single experience that we have, every contact with our sense bases, creates, produces this feeling tone. When ignorance is present, the whole cycle of dependent origination begins with ignorance and is predicated on ignorance arising. And so when ignorance that is, the not seeing of how suffering is created. When ignorance arises with feeling, it leads to craving. It follows on from craving, follows on clinging, follows on becoming, identification, follows on selfing, follows on suffering. So really the... um, the key point I see in how feeling leads to craving, it's not that it's an automatic leap from feeling to craving. It seems pretty automatic in a way. I mean, when we're just going through our lives, you know, we, we kind of automatically move towards the pleasant, automatically move away from the unpleasant. That is happening in concert with ignorance arising in the mind with not being clearly aware, understanding how suffering arises in the mind. So when we are not seeing clearly, feeling leads on to craving, leads on to clinging, leads on to suffering. So it's a very familiar process and seems automatic in a way, but it's not fixed. It's not hardwired. And this is why the Buddha highlights the importance of noticing feeling tone. Because with mindfulness and wisdom brought to that very experience, it can just short-circuit the typical movement towards craving, and actually lead in another direction entirely, towards freedom, towards liberation. And so this highlights the importance, I think, of meeting feeling with mindfulness and wisdom. And the second foundation of mindfulness is devoted to feeling. Out of four foundations of mindfulness, one is the body, attending to the experience of the body. The second foundation is devoted to this exploration of pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It was that important for the Buddha to highlight it in a foundation of mindfulness. I'm going to read you the first part of this. Many of you are probably familiar with this. And how does one abide contemplating feelings as feelings? Here, when feeling a pleasant feeling, one understands. I feel a pleasant feeling. 
When feeling an unpleasant feeling, one understands. I feel an unpleasant feeling. When feeling a neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling, one understands. I feel a neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling. It's really quite a simple instruction. Although not necessarily so easy to effect, to accomplish. Feeling tone can be quite subtle. And when it's not subtle, as I said a few minutes ago, it's often overlooked because we're kind of automatically reacting to it. And so it can take some time to begin to attune ourselves to this quality, to begin to get familiar with feeling tone. This pleasant, unpleasant, neutral quality to experience is associated both with our physical experience and our mental experience. So every contact with the body, with all the bodily senses, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, there's the aspect of feeling that goes along with that. Every contact with the mind, every thought, every emotion, every, every idea, belief, opinion, comes with a feeling tone. Now while both physical experience and mental experience have this feeling tone, feeling tone is understood to be a mental experience. Even the physical, even the feeling tone that comes with physical experience is understood to be a mental experience. Now that may seem a bit odd. I mean, it seems like You know, we cut ourselves with a knife, it's like unpleasant. How can that possibly be a mental experience? It's like the nerves, right? The nerves are processing that. We think that should be a physical thing. Well, actually, the Buddha talked about it as being a mental process, and now um, science is discovering the same thing. So I just found this... um, in the March 2013 issue of Pain, the journal Pain, there was a study done on the experience of pleasant and unpleasant. And they gave people two scenarios. The first scenario, they were hooked up to some a device that would give them either a, a, an unpainful experience a non-painful experience, or a moderately painful experience. And they said moderately painful was essentially um, the level of pain that might come if you were touching a cup of coffee that was slightly too hot. So that was what they were using for their moderate pain. So this is the first scenario. And in these scenarios, they are shown, they're told on a screen what the next kind of stimulus they're going to be given. And they're hooked up to brain things and MRIs and, you know, it's showing where the pain is registering in their brain. And sure enough, you know, the unpainful stimulus was reported as unpainful and the painful stimulus, the slightly too hot 
experience was reported as painful. The second round, they um, had that moderately painful stimulus and it said an intense pain. They didn't describe how intense the intense pain was, but so they were you know, hooked up and going to be given either this moderate pain or an intense pain. And again, they were told which kind of pain was coming. And actually, to the um, researcher's surprise, in the second scenario, participants rated the moderate pain as actually pleasurable. The participants' brain activity also showed less activation in the pain region of the brain, the brain stem, and more activation in the region in the middle of the frontal lobes that's associated with pain relief and pleasure. The uh, researchers said the likely explanation that the subjects what is that the subjects were prepared for the worst and thus felt relieved when they realized the pain was not going to be as bad as they feared. In other words, a sense of relief can be powerful enough to turn around such an obviously negative experience as pain into a sensation that is comforting or even pleasurable. Even physical experience, physical pleasure, pain, is mediated through the mind. So we have the feeling tones associated with physical sensation. We have feeling tones associated with the mind. The um, mental experiences, emotions, for example. Anger is usually experienced as unpleasant. Happiness is pleasant. Grief is unpleasant. Equanimity, perhaps, as neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Although there is one place where the Buddha describes that um, whatever is not felt as painful is felt as pleasurable, and in some ways described the experience of equanimity, of absence of pain, as being pleasurable. So getting familiar with feeling tone, I think, is one of the hmm, helpful explorations of our practice. Because as we get familiar with it, we can bring this mindfulness and wisdom to it, beginning to short-circuit the kind of automatic movement towards reactivity. So the easiest place, actually, I think, is in exploring our physical sensations, a physical contact. The touch, the touch sense of our skin is very attuned to pleasant and unpleasant. The nerve endings are quite attuned to pleasant and unpleasant. And so it's an easy place to really begin to sense and feel into this quality. We can explore the unpleasantness of an itch, the unpleasantness of a painful experience in the, in the body from sitting. We can explore the pleasant experience of the smoothness of breathing. We 
just beginning to attune to that experience right now. What's the most obvious experience that you have? And can you tune in to whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant? In daily activities, exploring this quality of pleasant, unpleasant can be really fun. I found exploring it in eating to be a really enjoyable experience. Just watching how the flow of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral happens and how long it lasts. You know, actually, you put something in your mouth like, um, you know, a bit of orange or something and start chewing it. And when there's the the, the beginning, the burst of perhaps liquid and juice and tartness and sweetness that come together, so there's that burst of sensation in your mouth. And for some of you, that may be pleasant. For some of you, it may be unpleasant. But just recognizing that experience, noticing, is it pleasant for you? Is it unpleasant for you? How long does the pleasant last? It actually is pretty short, actually, (laughs) how long it lasts. You know, you sit here, you sit here before lunch, just envisioning the pleasure of lunch. You know, this is, this is, um, this is a way you can begin to explore the, um, the impact of thoughts and how they impact feeling tone, right? You've got the thought of lunch, boy, yeah, it makes you feel good to think about lunch. You envision how great it's going to be to eat lunch and, you know, the anticipation. It feels pretty good. But when we actually get to lunch and start eating it, you know, it's like, well, I get these little tiny bursts. If you're actually paying attention, the actual physical experience of pleasure comes and goes pretty rapidly. I found in exploring feeling tone while eating, it was a very interesting place to see the conditioned nature of feeling. I was um, here, I think it was maybe my first or second three-month course, and they served for a tea, a dinner one evening. They had apples and bean dip. That was our, our evening meal. And it was just about this time of year, I think. It was, you know, early October, late September. So the apples were quite hard and quite crispy. And I put the bite of apple in my mouth, and I was almost overwhelmed with pleasant. So it was pretty easy for me to tell that it was pleasant. And it it was pleasant um, physical experience in my, um, my mouth, and also it produced delight. It it produced delight in my mind, which created a kind of a lovely, bubbly sense throughout the whole body. So pleasant bodily experience, pleasant mental experience, both coming together. Then I put the bean dip in my mouth, and um, that had a completely different texture and flavor, and it was interesting. I mean, it was pretty good. And then I put the apple in my mouth again, and... That second bite of apple after the bean dip was even more pleasant. Something about, I don't know, something about the conditions on the tongue of having had something um, kind of pungent and smooth on the tongue contrasted with the tartness and juiciness of the apple. 
really highlighted the pleasantness of the apple for me. So I kind of got into this alternating bean dip, apple, noticing the pleasantness, eating several bites of apple, noticing it wasn't quite as pleasant. So just kind of playing with it, just exploring the experience. And the more I ate, the more diminished the pleasure became. I also thought, I also thought that was interesting, either getting acclimated to the food or, but it just really showed me that the pleasantness wasn't inherent in the apple, or even the combination of bean dip and apple. It came as a result of various conditions coming together. And by the end of the meal, it was just kind of an apple, you know? Just a kind of a more ordinary experience. The mental feeling tone, I've talked about that just briefly, comes with every experience of our, of our mind. Ideas, thoughts, emotions, sadness, perhaps, usually unpleasant, happiness, pleasant. Ideas, thoughts, views, opinions also have a feeling tone, although I think most thoughts, the bare thought at least in my exploration of this, and I can't say it's exhaustive by any means, but the bare thought itself, just the arising of a thought, seems to be pretty neutral. It's the associations that follow, the ideas, the opinions, the, the um, associations that come with it that may be pleasant or unpleasant, that seem to create the feeling tone around a thought. So you may, you know, think of a friend that you dearly love. The thought of the friend yourself, the initial thought may be, um, you know, kind of neutral. But then the mind starts contemplating associations. Starts remembering things, perhaps sometimes depending on your mood. The things you remember may be the things that you enjoy about that person and a pleasant feeling tone arises. Other times, depending on your mood or state of mind, you may be inclined to remember, oh, but they did that thing. Why did they do that thing? And then an unpleasant feeling tone arises. So often I think thoughts and feelings will produce a kind of an emotion that then has a feeling tone to it. I actually think thoughts, ideas, associations are actually a kind of a leading cause of our perception of feeling in our physical experience. Much of what we think we experience as pleasant or unpleasant, I think, actually comes because we have ideas about it. There's actually a um, a teaching in the Abhidhamma that 
kind of refers to this somewhat, especially for the um, non-physical senses. The Abhidhamma says that the physical sense of touch has pleasant, unpleasant quality to it. In fact, that's pretty much the way our nerves are designed to produce pleasant, unpleasant in our physical contact. But the Abhidhamma proposes, and I'm just going to put this out there because I don't know that I completely believe this, but I found it to be an interesting exploration in my own practice. The Abhidhamma proposes that um, the feeling tone of contact with eye, ear, nose, and tongue, the bare contact, is neutral. And that any time we experience pleasant or unpleasant sight, sound, smell, or taste, it's because there's a mental association, a mental process going on. Now again, I don't know that I completely believe this. And in fact, the the suttas talk about there being pleasant, unpleasant, neutral associated with all of the senses. So it's interesting that the Abhidhamma brings this up. But in any case, I've explored it myself a little bit, and I found it to be a very interesting tool for exploring feeling tone. So for instance, one, um, one evening, I was having um, difficulty sleeping. And when I have difficulty sleeping, it was the middle of the night, I woke up with difficulty sleeping, and I just got up to meditate. That's what I do, tend to do if I'm uh, having insomnia in the middle of the night. So I got up to meditate. This was not on retreat. It was at home. And while I was sitting there meditating, I heard this very quiet tapping noise. Just this... Subtle tapping noise seemed to be coming from my wall somewhere. My experience was that the tapping noise was unpleasant. It would come and go, and I would notice the tapping, and I would just recognize, well, unpleasant, unpleasant sound, unpleasant sound is happening. And as I kept sitting, this tapping noise kept coming and going, At some point, I recognized that when the tapping started, there was a contraction that happened in the body. The contraction was unpleasant. The physical contraction, tightening, tensing in the body, that was unpleasant also. So I was noticing that. I was noticing the unpleasantness in the body as well as uh, what I perceived to be the unpleasantness in the sound. And at some point when the tapping came back, it would, it would disappear for a while and I would just be meditating in the quiet. At some point when it came back, I noticed a flash of fear. Just the subtlest flash of fear as the tapping started. The fear was clearly unpleasant. And as I continued to observe, having seen the fear and the unpleasantness of the fear, I could see that the tapping sound was actually pretty neutral. I even experienced it as slightly pleasant, that quiet tapping sound. So that was a a real learning for me to see how the fear 
had colored the perception of feeling. I think this happens to us a lot. I think it happens to us a lot that we're in a particular state of aversion, or as this example from this researcher said, expecting a strongly unpleasant feeling and being presented with a less unpleasant feeling, the mind interprets experience in a different way based on the climate of our mind, based on what we're expecting, what our um, predispositions are. So I think in terms of exploring feeling, it can be very interesting to actually begin to find or look what is it that we're actually reacting to? What is it that we are feeling as unpleasant or pleasant? I think much of our reactivity actually leaps off of mental feeling rather than the actual physical feeling. One um, other experience on a retreat I had, there was a strong physical experience in the body, which seemed to be pretty unpleasant. And I was just exploring, what is the unpleasantness here? What is unpleasant about this strong experience in the body? And it came to me in a flash. It's out of control. I don't have control over this. That was really unpleasant. That idea, that mental climate of feeling like out of control, that was really unpleasant. And when I could see that that was what I was really reacting to, I could tell that the physical experience, well, there was a strong experience there. But it was more the mind that was being reacted to, not the body. This kind of exploration can be very interesting. The Buddha pointed to this in his famous um, story of the dart. He talked about how when an ordinary person is struck by an unpleasant physical sensation. They beat their breasts, they bewail, they moan, why me, why me, why am I having this unpleasant experience? He says, thus adding a mental unpleasant experience to the physical unpleasant experience. And I'd actually say multiplying the physical unpleasant experience by the mental unpleasant experience. So it can be a very interesting exploration if there's a persistent reactivity present for you. Check in and see if you can find what is being reacted to. What is it that the mind is either moving towards or trying to get rid of? On another retreat, it might have been my second three-month retreat, I was doing walking meditation. I think I told a walking meditation story here earlier. This is a different one. 
I experienced so much aversion while walking that I really got to explore my aversion. I seemed to be averse to how close people walked to me. I was averse to that other people were even there. I was, aver- I was just averse. So, but I used it. I used it as exploration. And um, I was doing walking meditation in this walking room right behind us. And uh, I was pretty comfortable with the walking. You know, people were spaced pretty comfortably. And then somebody else came in and slipped in right next to me. And <laughs> immediate aversion. Okay, there's aversion. What is it? I asked myself, what is it? that I'm finding unpleasant here. And I went through all the senses. The person didn't appear unpleasant in their body or face or clothes. I mean, you know, so sight wasn't unpleasant. They didn't smell bad, so smell wasn't a problem. And I wasn't like, you know, bumping up against them, so it wasn't touch. And taste was out of the question, so it wasn't like taste. And, it's so like, okay, you know, I went through all the physical senses and it's like, it must be in the mind. It must be in the mind. And so I was just doing walking, kind of curious. Well, what's going on in the mind? And I really hadn't seen anything. You know, it wasn't obvious to me what I was reacting to in the mind. And I was walking back and forth. I said, there must be some thought in there, something. I was walking back and forth. And suddenly this thought popped into my mind. He's weird. And, well, that's a thought. <laughs> I still didn't quite get it, you know. And a, a, little bit la- <laughs> a little bit later, you know, like two or three passes later, I saw that my mind had constructed He's Weird out of the fact that it was December, and it was freezing cold, and the person had bare feet. <laughs> and seeing that, I, just the ludicrousness of it, the whole unpleasantness, the whole aversion fell apart. And in the next pass of walking, spontaneous metta was arising. It can be fun. (laughs) It can be fun to explore this. It can also be really interesting, I think, to explore neutral. I'm talking mostly about pleasant and unpleasant. And one thing I want to, um, to say, um, um, after I gave the instructions on neutral, um, Joseph pointed me to something in, I think it's in the Abhidhamma, um, where neutral experience in the Abhidhamma is, they say, it's a su- such a subtle experience, often it's seen in terms of the absence of pleasant and the absence of unpleasant. In my own experience, I have seen, felt sense of neither pleasant nor unpleasant. But it, it is rare, actually, to see that. And so I thought that was interesting that in the Abhidhamma, they point to neutral as being kind of recognized by inference, recognized in the absence of pleasant and the absence of unpleasant. But in any case, as the practice deepens, we may find ourselves in periods of time where there is more neutral experience. I think this happens because our mental reactivity diminishes. You know, as I was saying, much of the pleasant unpleasantness in our physical realm 
comes because we are, we have ideas, opinions, views, judgments, kind of underlying tendencies towards aversion and greed. And so as those begin to fall away, our experience becomes much more neutral. But we don't simply, we're not simply unreactive to neutral. We have our own ways of responding to neutral. On one retreat, I was at Spirit Rock and I was in a place where neutral was coming up a lot and so I was getting to spend time just kind of noting, noticing neutral. Neutral is happening, neutral experience is happening. And I noticed that quite often actually when neutral experience would happen, the mind would get a little bit dull or like lose interest in the neutrality. And it would slip off into indifference or boredom. So I could see that that was one kind of tendency of mind when there was neutral experience, just to disconnect, you know, just to lose touch with the neutrality. Another very interesting um, response, reaction I saw to neutral was that I had heard in Dharma talks, you know, when things get more settled, it gets more neutral. And, and so I was like, oh, neutral. It's like, maybe something good is going to happen. And so there was a little bit of like leaning in, you know, oh, neutral. What? Is something good going to happen? Is something good going to happen? And when nothing good happened, <laughs> my mind produced its, one of its most habitual tendencies, which is you're a failure. You've messed up. You're no good as a meditator. Out of neutral experience, my mind created one of its most habitual tendencies, this kind of self-negativity, self, kind of a self-flagellation. Um, Out of neutral experience. Fortunately, on this retreat, I was seeing it. I could see it go there, and I could, I could, I could smile at it. Oh, look at that. Look what the mind is doing. Out of nothing, out of neutral experience, it creates this pattern. So I think neutral experience, as the mind starts moving towards neutral experience, that can be a place where some of our most habitual tendencies will kick in. Watch for yourself. What happens when experience is neutral? The Satipatthana Sutta continues. I'll read this part. So after it's gone through the beginning, just noticing pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It says, when feeling a worldly pleasant feeling, one understands, I feel a worldly pleasant feeling. I'll talk about what worldly means in a minute. When feeling a worldly unpleasant feeling, one understands I feel a worldly unpleasant feeling. When feeling a worldly neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling, one understands I feel a worldly neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling. When feeling an unworldly pleasant feeling, one understands I feel an unworldly pleasant feeling. Likewise, for unworldly unpleasant, unworldly neither pleasant nor unpleasant. 
So these um, terms that are translated as worldly and unworldly, they are uh, the Pali of, that's translated as worldly is samisa. Basically means something like of the flesh. Niramisa, unworldly, means not of the flesh. The basic distinction being pointed to here, as I understand it, is that the worldly feeling are kind of the normal, everyday feelings that come with our senses. Pleasant experience related to the taste of food, the sights, the physical contact with our senses, and also the pleasant or unpleasant experience related to ideas about those experiences. Because it is said that this unworldly, worldly, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral comes at all six of the sense bases, not just at the five physical sense bases. So it's not simply a mental, physical distinction that's being made here. The unworldly, sometimes translated as spiritual feelings, Bikuanalio says that these are feelings associated with the path of practice. Feelings associated the unworldly, spiritual, pleasant feelings are, for instance, the feelings that come as the mind gets concentrated. It's not dependent on things of the world. The unworldly, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experience are described in one text, are connected to descriptions in a text, is related not only to the deepening of the mind and concentration, but also to the feelings that arise based on insight. So in the deep recognition of the impermanent nature of experience, there can be different feelings associated with that. Sometimes impermanence is experienced with a very clear seeing, very clearly seeing the arising and passing of experience. And that can bring a sense of joy. Felt as pleasant. That would be a unworldly pleasant feeling. Sometimes the experience of clearly seeing the arising and passing of experience kind of lands in a way of almost like enough already is all of this impingement never going to stop. And it can generate a sense of longing for freedom. This longing is understood to be an unworldly, unpleasant feeling. Not an unwholesome, unpleasant feeling. But this longing for liberation is coming as part of the path 
Sometimes the clear seeing of impermanence generates a feeling of balance of mind, of equanimity, experienced as neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Again, a sign of the path deepening. Bhikkhu Analyo says that this distinction between worldly feeling and unworldly feeling points to an ethical dimension of feeling, where ethical refers to what leads us towards freedom, what's connected with the path, and what is not connected with the path. That the worldly feelings, he says, are not connected with the path. They arise, they happen. The unworldly feelings that arise are connected with the deepening of practice. And so they can serve a little bit as guidance for us on the path. Now I want to just insert right here before you start thinking it's bad to have the regular kind of feeling. (laughs) You know, the Satipatthana Sutta says that whatever feeling is arising, it can be known clearly and serve as a vehicle for liberation. I think this distinction between unworldly and worldly feeling is pointing to the way with worldly feeling that we tend to be caught in a cycle around it. So as I was describing uh, earlier, you know, that with, with um, our feelings of reactivity in the mind, we can tend to orient and tend towards seeing things as pleasant or unpleasant. If we're, if we're experiencing aversion in the mind, Maybe you've noticed this. If you're experiencing aversion in the mind, many things your mind lands on tend to be unpleasant. Like out of that ground of aversion grows unpleasant experience. There's a teaching called um, that, that we have deep in our psyche these underlying tendencies to greed, aversion, and delusion. Even if they're not active in a moment, they are kind of still in the mind in a way, waiting to connect, waiting for delusion (laughs) to um, bring them to the surface. So my understanding actually is that we talked, I think we talked briefly about these kind of um, personality types that Some of us tend towards an aversive personality type. Some of us tend towards a a greedy personality type. Some towards more of a um, a delusive personality type. And for me, at least, I clearly see, have clearly seen how that underlying tendency, that kind of tendency towards aversion that this mind has, clearly informs how I meet the world. At one point, my early experiences of choiceless awareness, 
I was sitting doing a guided meditation with my teacher and he was asking me to just notice every experience, you know, just, you know, notice the next most obvious experience, whatever it was, as, you know, we've done with some of you in the meetings also, you know, what's the most obvious thing right now, right now, right now, right now. The thing that stood out for me most at the end of that very first exercise He said, well, that's choiceless awareness. And I said, that's, how can it be choiceless? It was all unpleasant. (laughs) And in my mind, I thought, you know, if it was completely choiceless, you know, it would be a mix. Well, it was choiceless in that the habit of mind was choosing and choosing unpleasant because of that orientation, that kind of underlying tendency. So the, um, the, worldly feelings tend to be connected to those underlying tendencies and also tend to cycle back to those underlying tendencies so that if an unpleasant experience arises and it's not seen, it will tend to lead to aversion. If a pleasant experience arises and it's not seen with wisdom, it will tend to lead to greed. So the worldly Feelings tend to cycle around with these underlying tendencies, feeding them and being fed by them. The unworldly feelings, there's one teaching that um, one, uh, a nun is talking to her ex-husband and um, he's asking her all these detailed questions about feeling. And Maybe I'll read this little section to you. Does the underlying tendency to greed have to be abandoned in regard to all pleasant feeling? Does the underlying tendency to aversion have to be abandoned in regard to all unpleasant feeling? Does the underlying tendency to ignorance have to be abandoned in regard to all neither painful nor pleasant feeling? And she basically says no. And she points to, when secluded from sense pleasure, one enters a state of jhana. This is accompanied by pleasure, and one does not have to abandon lust that underlies that. Lust, the tendency to lust does not underlie that pleasant experience. One considers, when shall I enter and abide in that base that the noble ones now enter and abide in? When one who generates a longing for supreme liberation, grief arises with that longing as a condition. With that, one abandons aversion, and the underlying tendency to aversion does not underlie that. So again, the, the, this is pointing to the distinction between worldly pleasant worldly, painful, worldly, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, and unworldly. This ethical distinction points to something important, I think, the Buddha recognized in his own journey. An important discovery on his own journey was that not all pleasure was to be avoided. Pleasure naturally arises as we deepen in the, the path. Some, some ways that it arises, that it arises based on the happiness and joy of giving, the happiness and joy of ethical conduct, 
there is also a kind of happiness that comes in the very simple meeting of sense experience. That to me, I mean, it, it's in the terrain of, you know, physical contact. You know, like, I've, we've heard you talking, you know, taking a walk and seeing the, the, the light on the leaves. And just experiencing the joy of really seeing that. You know, that's a joy that comes with being present. It's a, it's a connection with the path, that kind of joy. The pleasure of concentration, the pleasure of insight. The Buddha suggests relying on this, abandon that. Relying on the pleasure of practice, relying on the pleasure of concentration, of insight, abandon the pleasure of seeking happiness through sense pleasure. In a way, this is how the practice can unfold. You know, our minds, our whole organism is seeking for happiness. We're oriented in our very organism to find well-being. Only our Minds are so confused about how that well-being is to be found. They're deluded. They, the, the delusion, the ignorance that covers our minds has us believe that having the next hit of some pleasant sense experience is where happiness lies. As we begin to see more clearly, the mind begins to understand that that happiness is all bound up with wanting and aversion. And that wanting and aversion is not the way towards well-being. It begins to understand the happiness of concentration, the happiness of insight. And through that can begin to let go of our dependence, our neediness for that kind of short-sighted happiness that we've lived so much of our lives running around trying to create. We begin to see that the pleasure of the sense realm pales in comparison to the pleasure that's available through letting go. And it's helpful of course, to recognize that we can cling to that pleasure, that unworldly pleasure too. <laughs> you know, we have a good sitting. It's just clear and settled and the mind is at ease. And then the next sitting, it's, oh, how can I get that back? How can I get that back? Steve Armstrong, famous quote by Steve Armstrong. There's nothing like a good sit to ruin your day. (laughs) This usually happens after the fact. You know, we, we have that 
sitting that's really clear. We have that clear sitting. And then, after the fact, we remember it. We remember, it's, it's a thought arising in our mind. That felt good. I remember that felt good. What we're actually clinging to is not the actual experience of that sitting, which is long gone, but the idea of it. I've seen myself cling to the idea of being able to tell somebody I had a good sitting, even though I wasn't having good sittings. I mean, what I was thinking of good sittings, you know? I was, I was you know, having some image of what it, how great it was going to be when I could go into that interview room and describe all the impermanence I was seeing. I had no idea what I was looking for. So we cling, what we are clinging to often around this unworldly pleasure is the idea, an identity that we've created around it. The identity rather than the experience itself. So the Satipatthana Sutta suggests simply recognize feeling is happening. Recognize what kind of feeling is happening and that it is happening. It doesn't say one feels a worldly feeling and then tries to get rid of it. It says one feels the worldly feeling and knows they feel a worldly feeling. It is the comprehension of that that is the important part. Understanding feelings nature. I'm going to read you two quotes to finish that both point to how this exploration of feeling leads right to freedom. This first one is from the Greater Discourse on the Destruction of Craving, Majjama 38. And it's going through all of the sense bases. I'll just read it with respect to the eye. On seeing a form with the eye, one does not become greedy for pleasant forms or averse to disagreeable forms. One abides with mindfulness of the body established and with an immeasurable mind. Having abandoned the path of agreeing and disagreeing, one experiences whatever feeling arises, pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, just as it is. I like that. Having abandoned the path of agreeing and disagreeing. It's a very simple thing that we do around feeling. Having abandoned the path of agreeing and disagreeing. He experienced whatever feeling arises just as it is. He or she. One is not delighted or pleased with those feelings and one does not appropriate them. Interest in those feelings ceases. Now my understanding about what that means, interest in those feelings ceases, is that the interest in having certain feelings the interest in more of that, please, less of that, please, that's the interest that ceases. My understanding is that the interest becomes connected with interest in the impermanent nature of the feeling. So it's not, it's not saying don't be interested in your experience. I think it's pointing to a specific thing here. Interest in 
having certain feelings ceases. With the cessation of interest, clinging ceases. And then there is the famous teaching, which I think has come up several times in the hall, that the path, in a nutshell, is nothing is to be clung to. That encapsulates the teachings. In this passage, which is in the Anguttara, he elaborates on what this means. He's talking to Mogalana. Here, Mogalana, one has learnt thus nothing is fit to be clung to. If one has learned that nothing is fit to be clung to, one directly knows everything directly knows all experience. By directly knowing everything, one fully understands everything. When one fully understands everything, whatever feeling is experienced, be it pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, in regard to those same feelings, one dwells contemplating impermanence, contemplating dispassion, contemplating cessation, contemplating relinquishment. When one thus abides contemplating impermanence, dispassion, cessation, and relinquishment in regard to those feelings, one does not cling to anything in the world. Without clinging, one is not agitated. Being unagitated, one personally obtains Nibbana, freedom. Understanding feelings nature brings wisdom into the unfolding flow of our experience, leading the typical pattern of dependent origination to fall apart. Freedom from suffering. Let's sit for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.